Come on in, guys. Come on in. Okay, first of all, I'm really surprised that Cody turned my mic on this week because actually this begins my public apology tour. Cody, I am so sincerely sorry. You know how like you can't see yourself? Like you can't see your behavior? You can hear yourself though. And I was listening to the recording back and I thought I was just like, hey Cody, turn it up. And what I heard was, Cody, turn it up! That was completely inappropriate. Cody's been nothing, he created that mashup. He was so kind. He was like, yeah, I'll do that for you. And then I yell at him. So this is my apology to Cody. And I want to tell you guys, while you're all sitting here, that on Sunday, if anything goes wrong in that booth, do not turn around with a hostile face. Because I see it every Sunday. I see, like, there might be a little slip up at the slide, and everyone's like. (laughs) They look up at the sound booth like they could do a better job. Let me tell you, you cannot. You cannot. Okay, so actually, when I was drying my hair this morning, I decided, Cody, can we get that slide up, please? (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's Stacy. Uh-oh, she says, don't you yell at me. I will fight you. I will break your kneecaps. But seriously, we do have a slide. But do we? Do we? Do we? Ah, there's a slide. While I was drying my hair this morning, I said to my personalities, all 22 of them, I said, guys, we are going to be serious this morning. So this is, this is so cool. Next week is November 1st. The week after that is November 8th. So we have two more weeks to make a huge impact. We are collecting, you see the little bullet points with the hearts? We are collecting these items for a refuge for women. This is for um, victims of sex trafficking. And there's going to be a donation bin. Never eat shredded wheat. South. South Corridor. There's going to be a bin. We're going to collect these things. Guys, let's challenge ourselves to really show up for these ladies, Okay. And Chris, did we decide if we were going to have a contest within our small groups? We never got clearance on that. We need to get clearance. But we're going to have, because we found out last year that you guys do not like participation trophies. You guys like clear winners and clear losers. So we're going to have a competition probably-ish between our small group leaders. And we're going to see which small group, I hope it's mine, can get the most products to benefit these wonderful ladies, okay? That will be blessed by what you bring in. Okay, so we have that. We do not have Chick-fil-A today. By the way, I listened to the recording. I never once mentioned Spirit Week was happening at Chick-fil-A. So I hope you didn't go to McDonald's or Wendy's because it was not happening. Okay, last, sign up for John. I don't have the mashup, but... No, I'm just kidding. Okay, now we have Karen. Karen, are you going to speak? Okay, so guys, come on. Come on. Represent all items next week, please. We have two more weeks. Thanks, Karen. I like your shoes. Hello, my name is Karen McDonald, and this is my smoke story. So let me begin by personalizing three scriptures that, in my opinion, accurately define a believer's vocation. 
1 Peter 2.5 says, You, Karen, as a living stone, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, worship, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 goes on to tell me that as a believer in Christ, I am of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, so that I can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. After considering the, passage, the messages of these first two scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.20 clarifies further by stating that as his daughter, my human vocation is to be an ambassador for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through me. Therefore, as his representative to the world, it's understood that I am to worship the creator and not the created. To reflect all worship back to God and his justice and wisdom back into the world. But worshiping the creator demands submission. And oh, how easily I can and did slip into worshiping the created rather than the creator. It was Wednesday, February 25th, 2009, and I was rushing to get to church on time. I didn't live far away, so my drive was only six, seven minutes tops. And I remember in the days prior that I'd felt a gnawing hunger or a thirst in my heart to love the Lord well. It was as if I had an awareness of something kind of unsettling within me, a sort of weariness, if you will. And then came the conversation. As I drove, it went something like this. Let's see if I can do this, girls. Me. Gosh, Father, here it is, the day, the first day of Lent, and I'm on my way to church, yet I haven't sought your perspective on giving something up as an act of worship and remembrance. And you know, God, I really never have gotten that completely. I mean, truly, after all, what can I do or give up that really honors you well? I mean, you don't want me to just cop out and do something to be lazy or pick something that's meaningless just to be able to say I'm doing the right thing. What should I do? What will it be? Jesus, give me your adornment. What? Give you adornment? You mean accessorizing jewelry, trends, image, style? Lord, I can't give that up. Lent's 40 days long. What would people think? I mean, I don't want to appear. My eyes began to fill then with tears. And at this point, my heart beat faster, and it was revealing to me what really was inside. Did I have a desire to be worshipped more than to worship the Lord? The shame was so great, and I was embarrassed. Were my reactions revealing vanity, insecurity, selfishness, or all three? Did I just tell Jesus that I was unable or unwilling to give 40 days in submission to him after what he'd done for me in the world? Okay, Lord, this is silly. I understand the lesson. What, what, what should I really give up? And it was at this moment as I drove that I saw him hanging there on the cross, his arms outstretched before me, and I heard him say, Father, forgive Karen. My, my tears began to flow more freely, and then I, I began to list my exceptions to submitting personal adornment. 
Lord, I know what you've suggested, and I know what you're suggesting. But there's a ball coming up in late February that Paul and I to attend, and all the co-workers are going to be there. And how can I go to such an event in a ball gown with no earrings and no accessorizing jewelry? I'd look ridiculous. What would others think? Lord, you already know that I love you. You also know I'm not able to say no to you. Why did you ask this of me? You asked me, Karen. I love you, and I want you to understand that I'm jealous for you, all of you. Your desire to please others, to glorify yourself, to be accepted and approved of by letting the world and culture define who you are based on your accomplishments, your style, and more, draws you into slavery. It leaves me no room on the throne of your heart, and I will not be Lord of part of your heart. My glory is what's best for you. Worshiping me is what keeps you free and truly living the abundant, eternal life you were called to. As I pulled into the church parking lot, I accepted his call to die to self and submit adornment to him. I expected it would be 40 days fraught with temptation and testing, but I also knew in my heart that though awkward, he would see me through and that his love for me, along with life lessons, were never wasted. The first week did feel awkward. I was embarrassed. I knew in my heart I wasn't to share this with anyone, but oh, how I wanted to. I wanted a way of explaining why I was practically naked. There was also this soft voice inside me that pointed out how my holy example could be for his glory. If only I would explain it to a few folks. Hmm, does that sound like the voice of the enemy? or my flesh, all I knew for sure was that that was not the voice of my Savior. As Lent moved closer to Easter Sunday, which was on April 12th that year, I began to feel freedom. I know that sounds weird, but it's so silly to think that standing in my closet, pondering what to put on could be so freeing when not having to wonder what was just the right accessory or wasting energy, wondering if I looked pulled together. Now, girls, I know we just studied how you should put on your scarves and stuff, but keep it in context. Anyway, not to be worried about whether or not I looked acceptable. So I... So then I began to stop and reflect how my dress or outward appearance could be used to shape my identity or value, and even worse, how it could lead me into worship of the created. During those 40 days of Lent, I asked myself, are there other persons or ideals or attitudes in my life that I worshiped? Where or how do I worship the created rather than the creator? Do I worship the created through my lifestyle, my possessions, people, culture, self-image? It became liberating to me to see and to understand how easily it is to, be, to dethrone the creator and worship the created in everyday life. On April 7th, Leo, our good friend and lawn care man, asked, um, called and asked me if I could tell him when it would be a convenient time for he and his wife and two children to drop by and give me a birthday present. My birthday was the next day on the 8th, but Paul and I were leaving town that very evening to spend my birthday and Easter away. Leo was disappointed and said that Diane and the kids were so excited about my gift and would not want to wait until after my birthday and Easter to give it to me. So I suggested that Paul and I could meet them on our way out of town. 
When we pulled up to their car, Diana and the kids jumped out with brilliant smiles on their faces and a little wrapped box in their hand. I opened the box and I was stunned because right there, tucked deeply inside in beautiful paper, was a beautiful, delicate gold cross necklace with little diamonds. Diana said they'd pulled their funds together and that the kids had given from their savings. Sorry, in my emotion, I just lost my place. Um, they loved me so much. Here it was, Lent was over, and in my hand, I held a cross. My creator and savior smiled, and then I felt the irony of it all fall fresh over me. Diana, Jennifer, and Andy saw my emotional tears of gratitude while not fully comprehending the lesson taught to me that my tears revealed. Their love for me was real and beautiful, but my father's love is greater still. He chases me. He watches over me. He never relents because he dwells within me. His love purifies and transforms me. So ladies, we can all be encouraged because our God is willing and able to speak into our everyday simple lives. What we dare to give him, he multiplies and returns to us, a life more abundant. He knew in advance that my precious friends wanted to give me a special gift. He wanted it to be eternally significant. They gave me a cross necklace that will forever be more than adornment. And in the process, he gave me life more abundant. Did this event once and for all change me? Well, I can only say that going forward, my attitude and desire for the created has been greatly altered in that I do not depend upon the outward or created to define me as much as I once did. But I'm a work in progress, and I'm learning and desiring to yield more and more. He is not finished yet. To close, I would like to share a parting scripture that helps me to be centered, because truthfully, truth blows away smoke. Galatians 6.14 but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Ladies, may we, have, may we live the crucified life so that true life remain, reigns in us and through us for the glory of our King. Thanks. I could probably use those signs somehow. <laughs> oh no, I forgot again. Sorry. Lindsay. <laughs> Let's pray for Lindsay. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for um, thank you for the beauty in the small things that you care about. We are so quick often to just brush aside um, little things, adornments. Lord, um, you care. You care about loving us and showing us how you love us through every moment of our lives, through the big, through the right and wrong, and through the left and the right, and all the things that, that just seem so confusing sometimes, God, but you are in all of those details. Thank you. 
Um, Father, show us who you are today. We pray that through the words of Solomon that we understand you today, God, that we understand what you see in our lives that need to be transformed. What are we worshiping? What are we putting ahead of you, Lord? And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for those of you that will wig out, if I don't take off both, I'll take off both earrings. How about that? Um, Hi, we're back. Guys, we're getting close to the finish line. We're round and third. It's pretty exciting. Um, This week we are in, we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 9. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 9, and we're going to start there in just a minute. Um, Last week, last week, remember, we talked about the chase. We talked about what are those things that we're chasing after when we're not chasing after our Savior, and how do we change directions, and then how do we fully have satisfaction and meaning through Jesus alone, right? We talked about those things. And then this week, you got to look at um, some weirdness of my family. We like to talk in acronyms. It takes a funeral is something we say to each other a lot. Um, it takes a funeral. What are those uncertainties in life? What are those big moments that happen that cause us to have like this different perspective? You know, um, for you, when you read through that, I hope it made sense to you. But I will tell you this. Um, we've amended that it takes a funeral acronym often in our home. And, it, and sometimes it's, it takes a, a bike wreck. It takes a a firing. It takes an illness. It takes all these different things, right, where God stops us for a brief moment and everything is suspended and we rethink, right? And so that's all this um, lesson is about. It's about there's a certainty that you are going to get old and you're going to die. You're glad you're here, I'm sure. But in that certainty, there are moments where God wants to gather our attention and he wants us to stop and pause and put everything that doesn't matter aside, doesn't he? And so this week we're going to talk about uncertainties of life, certainty of death. We're going to talk about how we grapple with truth, purpose, hope, circumstances, consequences, love, reason, joy, satisfaction. All those things. How do we carry this big life we have around in the midst of our mundane and then in the midst of the funeral moments that just shock us to the bone? And so we're going to look at four things that Solomon teaches us through um, chapter uh, 9, and then we go into 11 and 12. You covered a lot of ground this week. And so we're going to look at four things. One, we're going to look at how death is unavoidable. Secondly, how life is unpredictable. Thirdly, how life is uncertain. But then lastly, how life is a gift. How life is a gift. Open up your Bibles, if you haven't, to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. We got tons of stuff to cover, and so I'm going to do my best to move quickly. Um, I'm going to read through a lot of Scripture, and we're just going to kind of pause along the way and see what he has to say. And so the first thing that we're going to take a look at is how death um, is unavoidable. Death is unavoidable. In chapter 9, he gives us... If you'll remember, we walked through all those different um, things that he talked about, how we're supposed to pause and enjoy life as we go through. Because death is coming, guys. That's the news. Verses 1 through 3, he says this, starting in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same events happen to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. 
As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as those who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That is the same event happens to us all. Sound familiar? Anybody heard something relatively close to that over the course of the last few weeks? How about that week where he talked about how the same thing happens to us and the dogs, right? We all going to turn back to dust. Well, he's basically saying the same thing. He's telling us, guys, that we all die. We all die. Righteous, wicked, good, bad, worshipers, non-worshippers, committed, uncommitted. But you know what's so cool? I love the honesty of Solomon in verse 3. Because he says this, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And that is the same event that happens to all of us. He basically says, this frustrates me. Anybody? Anybody frustrated by the fact that we all die? We all face the same thing. The message says it this way. I like this because this sounds a little more Solomon-ish. Okay, he says this. I find this outrageous. The worst thing about living on this earth is that everyone's lumped together in one fate. And that it is any wonder that so many people are obsessed with evil Is it any wonder that people go crazy right and left? You know, I hear that. I hear the whole uh, we all die. And I think about, you know, I follow the rules. I'm a rule follower. Who's a rule follower? If you're, you see, you all raised your hand. Like real, like you were very clear about it. And those of you, is Heather here? Heather, are you here? Okay. There's other people that are not rule followers. They might be rule benders. Ah, there's one in the front, Lindsay Ray. Rule followers, rule breakers, dog people, cat people. Hey, I'm just saying. Murderers, those that are murdered. Liars, those that are lied to. Wine drinkers, don't raise your hand if you're a murderer. Wine avoiders, abusers, the abused, all face the same fate, he tells us in verses 1 through 3. But then he follows it in verse 4 with this. But he who is joined with all the living has what? Has what? Hope has hope. He goes on to compare. Remember, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, which was so very weird. Let's pause real quick. Um, Something to think about when he's talking here. What he's saying is this. At the time when Solomon was writing this, dogs weren't like the awesome creatures that they are now laying on our nice fancy couches, right? These dogs were running around. They were scavengers, and they were the ones that cleaned up, and and they were a mess, and they were not you didn't want to be around them. And so the fact that he's comparing a living dog, which they would think very poorly of, to a big dead cat says something. What does it say? It says that there's hope. We all die. We all face the same fate. And yet, if you're still alive in this moment, there is still hope. He goes on in verses 7 through 10. And we talked about this in your homework, right? We talked about, we read the message version of it. It was kind of funny, right? Like Karen said, it talks about festive scarves and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of funny when you, when you think about it, like all the very specific things he brought up. But did you notice this? Did you notice that even in the language that you read it in, in the message and the ESV, if you read it in the ESV, those are all things that when you really kind of take away the verbiage, they're all things that we all encounter. We all have experience with, right? Those are common experiences. They're not necessarily this lifestyle that, that we're not familiar with. It doesn't matter what tax bracket you're in. You understand eating food, right? He goes in verse 7. He says this. He breaks it out. and I'm going to break it out into four things. I'm just going to talk about them real briefly because you covered it in your homework. And then we're going to move on. But he goes into explaining that we are to enjoy this life that we're given. Enjoy this life we're given. He, you, know, you know what's funny? Before I start, I found this 
interesting, like as I'm reading through like all the commentaries and everything that are talking about how he broke it out and how he categorized each of the little sections, I thought about our lives here today. I thought about now. I thought about, because I started writing about meals and sitting down at the table, and I thought, Chris, how many times have you sat down at the table this week with your family and put the phone away and turned the TV off and just chilled and enjoyed And then I started thinking, man, that's our lives, right? We are 24-7, amen? We are 24-7 society. If I need to buy something, I could pick up my phone right now and order it on Amazon. It'll be on my porch when I get home. That ain't bad. That's actually pretty good. But we live in this society where we expect that kind of quality. We expect that kind of timeliness. We expect things to move fast. I want my schedule to be full. I want fast food. I want fast shortcuts in life. Then I pursue new things. I want to avoid work and pursue comfort. I want to seek wealth and seek comfort in places where God maybe doesn't intend for me to find those things quite yet, right? I want to live in a relationship with somebody and just try it out before I get married because, you know, that just that solves a problem. We can work it out and figure it out and see if it works first. That's the way our world works. But Solomon's turning us back and saying, hey, man, that's not the way God works. And so in verses 7 through 10, he, he, he walks us through some things, four things, really. The first is in verse 7. He says this, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Eat your food, drink your wine. You know what he's saying here? Don't get caught up in the um, semantics of the wine thing because a lot of us have different opinions on, on what that is and what that looks like. Let me, just, let me just clarify some things. He's saying here you need to enjoy celebrations. You need to stop and pause and be present in the times that you have together. We need to look at life and enjoy meals and be present and celebrate well. Meals at the time of Solomon's time were like these communal um, friendships. They were like these moments of, of commitment and friendship and all this time where they would get together. It wasn't just about food. Do we do that anymore? He's saying we should. It's part of enjoying life. He's talking about wine, and I want to press the pause button here. Um, think about this. When you get caught up, whenever it says things about wine in the Bible, some of us kind of go, oh, what a, you know, and then some of us like maybe put in that thing. I want to, whenever I say, what do you want to do more of? You're like, I'll drink more wine. Okay, let me just tell you something to think about. We need to always adopt a biblical approach when we, when we hit things like this, okay? Adopt a biblical approach. What does that mean? That means you use the lens of God's authority to guide you on how you think, how you see, how you judge choices you make, okay? I'm not going to get all off on this, but Romans 14, jot that down. Go check out what Paul has to say about this very issue. Basically, it's this. Hey, don't condemn each other. Don't condemn each other for choices that you don't know anything about, but do this. Don't ever take part in something that causes your brother to stumble. It's key. And is drunkenness um, a sin? Yes, very clearly stated in the Bible. But drinking wine here, guys, is in the context of celebration. Think of it this way. Wine at this time was simply a drink in Solomon's day. It's like Diet Coke. So just substitute Diet Coke. Don't get caught up in that. He's saying, enjoy meals, celebrate well, be present. The next thing he says in verse 8 is this. He goes on to say, let your garments always be white And let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, Karen did not choose to only wear white for 40 days. We might have questioned. We might have known, right, had she done that. 
In the message version, he puts it a different way, Peterson does. He says it's to wear festive clothing and scarves, right? But basically all this means is that special occasions in this day, they wore white because that emitted joy. It's about representing joy. I tried to go back and find some beautiful um, relation to, to weddings and why we wear white as a wedding gown, but I really, you know, it would be a stretch. We could pretend like that's what that meant, but um, I didn't find a connection. We, we do see, too, that when he talks about anointing with oils, it's this. That when there were special occasions in Solomon's time, people would dress in white and they would anoint themselves with the most expensive oils and perfumes they had. And that's what he's saying. Do we look at life that way? Do we stop and pause? Are we the people that have, like, this is me, guys. I'm admitting this. I'm confessing this right now. Um, I have all this great china from my mom and my mother-in-law that they, like, bought me and all my wedding presents. And I have, like, the greatest, do I ever use it? No, I don't. You know, um, my, my stepdad always says fine china is the only, only kind of fine china there is is the kind that you wash in the dishwasher, right? But the thing is, like, do I just set all that stuff off to the side and never use it and never appreciate it? Solomon here is saying, guys, be festive, be joyful, approach life that way. In verse 9, he goes on to say this, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Faithful marriage. Faithful marriage. I love that he brings this up because he's Solomon. Anyone? Remember, he had a few wives. He had experience here, didn't he? You know, if we believe that he wrote this at the end of his life, we can assume that he sees this is important and I messed this up. Right? I don't know where you are in that course of your life, but all of us, if we're married, if we have been married, if we're going to be married, we will mess things up. But I love that Solomon returns back and says, I recognize that I did not do this well, but I also recognize that God has a plan for a faithful marriage. He says in Proverbs 18.22 and 19.14, he says, a wife is a gift from God. You want to just want tattoo that? Tattoo that on your arm? Share that with your husband? But remember this, he also um, goes on to remind us that this is not necessarily always lived out, right? Marriage should be protected, and it should be revered, and it should be hopeful. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about that. He gives good practical advice about marriage. He, but, but, but here's the cool thing, like, cool thing slash terribly painful hard thing. It's not just a suggestion, it's a command. It's a command from God. We cannot approach it too lightly. And so Solomon's telling us, hey, you may not have the most fun. It may not be what it was on the day of your wedding. It may not be the greatest thing ever. But we need to take joy and enjoyment in faithful, hard, committed, amazing, God-honoring marriage. He goes on in verse 10 to say, he talks about work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with, your, with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol here is, is, is referencing the grave. Okay, so he's basically saying this. He's saying, um, you know, Jewish people at the time, like work was a stewardship. Like it was an honor to be able to work because you had this thing that you did and you did it proudly. You know, now we, we try to find a shortcut. And we're like, what's the least amount of work I can possibly do to gain the most I can possibly gain? Amen? And don't just blame the millennials. Millennials, I'm here for you. I'm watching out. 
It's all of us, man. We have this idea that um, we don't need to work hard and that there's not honor in that. Do you remember what God gave Adam in the, in the garden before he fell? You know what he gave him? He gave him a job, didn't he? He gave him a job. We're to work hard. We're to take pride in our work. We're not to be lazy. Don't say, oh, this is, I mean, trust me, I'm talking to me. Don't say, I'm just trusting God and then go sit on the couch. Uh, God is sovereign, but God is also, he, he, he's in charge, but he also has expectations for us. And Solomon lays them out here. We are to work hard. And you know something I found that I thought was interesting? It was this. It was um, that we're not to live like it's our last day. I think there's some country western song or something about that. Live like you're dying. Okay, this is not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about live like you're dying. Because you know what happens when you live and you think you don't have another day left? You do what one of my husband's customers did. I really hope nobody knows this person because you might. He, he, he thought when he heard all that stuff going on about how everybody said the world was going to end. And we're not talking talking about it. Don't look at me. I'm not looking over there. Okay. You know what he did? He went out and bought an $80,000 sports car because he thought I'm dying tomorrow anyway. I'm going to buy me a car. And so I asked my husband a couple days ago, I go, Hey, what happened to that guy with the $80,000 sports car? Don't live like there's no tomorrow. There is a tomorrow. You've got to remember that you've got to make choices and work hard and do things that are responsible. You live, you make the most of today. You don't pretend like there's no consequences for tomorrow. Amen? It's a big difference. Don't go buy a sports car because you think the world's ending. You can write that one down. Death is unavoidable. Therefore, enjoy life. Don't just endure it. Enjoy life. Don't just endure it. That's what Solomon wants us to understand when we understand that death is unavoidable. The second thing we learn in um, Ecclesiastes 9 is this, that life is unpredictable. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. It's kind of like, why are we, I I was going through this, I'm like, this doesn't even seem that challenging. I kind of think we already know all this. He's reiterating some things, isn't he? Life is unpredictable. Excuse me. In verses 11 through 18, he tells us that. He lays it out for us. Verse 11, he says that. Remember the little phrase I made you look up? And we had to look it up in some of the other verses. He says this, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor the favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. Anybody get hung up on the word chance? Yeah, we believe in a God who's full of purpose and he knows everything and he's sovereign and all the things, right? Chance? Well, when you look at the word chance, I want you to remember that this is a Hebrew word. It's called pega, P-E-G-A, and it actually means occurrence or event. Don't, don't look at it like this uncontrollable thing because you know who's in charge of time and chance? It ain't you. I'll give you that. That's hint number one. It is God. He's in charge of time and chance. Don't read that and decide all of a sudden that he is um, this this God that that has no control over anything. And he just kind of crosses his fingers because that's not who our God is. Time and chance. Only God controls it. You know, when you look at life, there's so many things that are unpredictable. So many things. I, 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 I didn't plan for my kid to go over the handlebars and break his arm into a whole bunch of pieces. That was not predictable. That sure that's a possibility. Every time we drive out of here, there's possibilities, amen? But it wasn't predictable. Think about this. It's really, when you think about life, life is, is like, um, 
It's like hard work doesn't guarantee success. Anyone? Yeah. Being a good person doesn't guarantee that people are going to be good back to you. It's like we work our lives with this little asterisk next to it, don't we? We have a little asterisk. Think about this for a minute. Jim Elliott, anybody know who he was? He was this amazing missionary, right? And he, and he has this incredible legacy. Well, he spent years and years and years preparing for where God was taking him. No doubt that that's where God was taking him to Ecuador, to these, to these obscure Indian tribes in Ecuador. Years preparing. He finally gets there with four others. They're there. They spend four years working their way into these tribes. They're making progress. And then he's killed. How does that make sense? Life is unpredictable. In the Bible, you know, there was this really big, tall guy in the Bible in the Old Testament. His name was Goliath. Anyone? Anyone ever? Anybody go to Sunday school as a little kid? Okay. He was brought down by stones from a little kid, right? That is unpredictable. Do you think anybody saw that one coming? There's tons of those examples. Solomon, he had everything, and he was a mess, wasn't he? Joab's brother was the fastest guy in the Bible. That's what he's called, the fastest guy. And guess what happened? He got run through with a spear. Not fast enough. (laughs) Absalom was David's son. And you know what it was said about Absalom? Oh, such a, wow, I would love to say this, right? There wasn't a flaw in him from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head. And he died a death hanging on on a tree. Life is unpredictable. Things happen. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever worked really hard and been really, worked really hard and honest and with honor and then you get fired? Have you ever um, gotten physicals and you don't smoke, drink, or cuss and, and then you end up with cancer? What about death? What about those people? What about death of marriages? What about death of reputations? Those things that you did not see coming. Anybody? Life is unpredictable. And Solomon is reiterating that for us here. God interrupts our lives sometimes at seemingly unfair and inconvenient moments, doesn't he? We can call it what it is. I think he can handle it. He interrupts our lives. Our kids fly over handlebars and break into pieces. He interrupts the easy, the comfortable, and says, this is what's going to happen now. He goes on in verses 13 through 15, and I I love the message, the way the message laid this out. He says this, One day, as I was observing how wisdom fares on this earth, I saw something that made me sit up and take notice. There was a small town with only a few people in it, and a strong king came and mounted an attack, building trenches and attack posts around it. And there was a poor but wise man in that town whose wisdom saved the town, but he was promptly forgotten. You know, even when you do the right thing, Sometimes people just don't care, do they? They just, they don't care. All the time in this world, it happens. And so as I'm looking at this and I'm seeing, what Solomon, what are you trying to tell me? I know all this. Like, you're just making me mad. I challenge you to think about this. What are you depending on? What are you standing on? What are you relying on? What are you hoping in? Who are you trying to please? Because that's where the problem with the unpredictability of life comes in. It's like, who are we depending on through the unpredictability? Because it's coming. That is a certainty. The world is undependable. Unless we know Jesus, we will never be able to make sense of it. Never. Doesn't mean I understand the undependability of it. Doesn't mean I understand the uncertainties. What it does mean is I understand that God is not those things. 
Life is unpredictable, therefore, don't depend on the undependable things in life. Don't depend on those things. He goes on in chapter 11. We skip chapter 12, and you'll get to go back to that next week. Don't worry, type A people. It will be okay. You will get every single verse. Chapter 11, he goes on, um, and he talks about, do you remember the whole cast your bread thing? For the sake of time, I'm not going to reread all that, but he kind of walks us through the idea of this farmer and, and the merchant and the way it all went down. And cast your bread, you, you know, basically what that means is that the, the farmer has harvested all of this grain, and when he cast his bread, it was like a common saying then. And basically what it meant was you could play the safe bet and keep your grain and make your bread at home and just hunker down for the winter and just be at home. Or you could gamble. And you could take your grain and you could cast it to the sea and take it across. And, and, and you gamble because there's shipwrecks and there's pirates and there's unscrupulous traders. But there's also a possibility for financial gain that could sustain your family for a longer amount of time, right? And so when he says cast your bread, he's saying find a balance, be bold, and take a step. He talks about how... Um, how, how whenever you step out, sometimes that boldness, um, you have to really be careful and don't be foolish and greedy, right? Nothing is a sure bet. Life is uncertain. Paul, we looked at Paul's life, just a tiny little snapshot of Paul's life in our homework this week. We looked at the life of Paul, and it was this thing where we knew for sure, like, how cool is it that Paul knew exactly what God had planned for him, right? And so, like, as the crow flies, I mean, he's looking at Rome and going, hey, man, I'm here. I'm going there. Awesome. Got it figured out. I'm going to memorize some scripture and practice my teaching, and I'm going to be good. Did he know that getting here to there was going to be years of strife, of imprisonment, of shipwrecks, of snake bites? Of all these things. I guarantee you that's all we know about. I promise you there's a lot more. Sometimes the way we go is not necessarily what we would choose. But maybe the way he's taking us to get to that point is so that we will be forced to trust him along the way. I think Paul probably emerged from that period of time. I'm just guessing. But I bet you he was stronger and trusted God more than when God told him, you're going to Rome. Because he got there. But it was uncertain. In verses 3 through 4, he goes on to tell us about the wind and the uncertainty of that. Listen, here's the thing. The uncertainty of the wind, we don't know where all these things are going to happen. He lays out this beautiful word picture for us that so many people can understand when you hear that. But let me, let me, let me explain this. But there is a certainty here that's that's woven in the midst of all these verses right the certainty is this that life will never ever 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 how many evers was that three or four maybe add a few more thanks Jessica she's counting it will never you will never ever be given a perfect set of circumstances never stop trying to outguess God God I needed to hear that this week man because when I look at this and the uncertainty of all this, do I step out? Do I not step out? I thought, what does this mean? What is Solomon trying to explain to me? Because I'm trying to follow God. And if you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that's the way that you're trying to walk, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy and clear, right? Anybody? It's a lot of times it's like following the thing that, that Paul had to follow. We don't really know um, sometimes what we're supposed to be doing. You know, verses 5 through 6, he says this. I'm going to read this out loud so you can get context. 
Actually, verse 6. In the morning sow your seeds, and at the evening withhold not your hand. And listen, underline this. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Sometimes we don't know. Life is uncertain. Sometimes we know what God's will is. You know when those times are? I love this. I read um, in one of my books and it said this. It said that there, there are some different ways to look at the choices we make in life, okay? There are right and wrong choices. There are right and wrong. There are, you don't want to say there's black and white. I'm sorry, I got bad news. There's black and white. There are some things that are black and white. And you know what those are? Those are black and white things that you can find in the Bible that tell you what the will of God is. Okay, those are choices that we can go to God's word and we can know for certain. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. But then there's right and wrong, but then there's the left and the right. Am I right? Sometimes I turn left, sometimes I turn right. I am not sure. And it doesn't clearly state in the Bible whether or not I'm supposed to send my kid to private school or send him to public school. Whether I'm supposed to, I don't know, name the things Right? Sometimes there's just so much confusion, and I'm like, God, I'm trying to do what you want me to do, but you're not telling me. Well, I got news. Um, sometimes the left and right things, he may not reveal necessarily what his will is, but you know what we are to do? And I love this, and this is what he said. We are to step out boldly. We are to step out boldly and act. Are there times when God's will isn't clear? Yeah. Are there times when it may not be clear until you do step out boldly? Yeah. I know that I've had moments in my life where I felt like God spoke as clearly to me as he did to Paul. And then my life did this. And I'm still on some of those paths, right? And I don't know if I stepped out in the right way. I might have should have turned left and I turned right. But you know what I do know? I do know that God absolutely has my back. Amen? And then even when you take wrong turns, even when you take a wrong turn, sometimes those wrong turns are things that are going to build your trust in him. And he's going to bring you back around. Life is uncertain. Therefore, we have to live boldly and not fearfully. We got to trust God and put on some festive clothes and hang out where godly people hang out, right? Did, did you lose your job? Well, maybe trust God and work hard to find what's next. Trust him. Step out boldly. The last section in this portion is, is, is he goes through, um, we go through almost the whole chapter of 11. It's starting in verse 7, and it goes through 12, 8. And he says this. He says, life is a gift. Life is a gift. Verse 7 and 8 start us with that whole um, repetitive notion that life is, is vanity, right? That it's a vapor, that it's hevel, hevel. Verses 7 and 8, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them, but let him remember that the days of darkness are many. And this is what I'm talking all that comes is vanity, all that comes is vanity. It's a key word there. Life is fleeting. We've said it a million times in the course of reading over Ecclesiastes. It's fleeting. It's going. It's moving. And you know what I see there? I see this. Write this in all caps. Don't postpone. It's fleeting. Don't put it off. Life is a gift. He gives us three very clear directives here. And, um, and, and they just kind of bubbled up to the surface for me as I was reading this and working through it. 
um, he tells us three things. He says we're to rejoice, to remove, and to remember. Do you remember that from homework? We're to rejoice, remove, and remember. In verse 9 of chapter 11, he basically says, hey, guys, rejoice where you are. He talks about a young man, and he talk, calls us out for being in our youth. And I know a lot of us are like, well, I am not in my youth anymore. Well, you remember what I said in my most profound word I said in homework? You know what it is? You're the youngest today that you will ever be. It's the truth. This is it. Now is the time. Rejoice where you are. We want orderly and painless. We want God to answer why when things are hard, right? And, and, and really, we should be asking ourselves, why not? Why not me? Why, why should I ask God why when I need to be rejoicing where I am? I think about, I'm sorry I keep going back to this, but this is my world right now. My kid who had a bike wreck and flies over the handlebars and everything. And the funny thing about him is, well, a million things are funny about him. But one of the funniest things about him was that from the very beginning... Um, it was it was scary and stuff, but from the very beginning, he he was like in this crazy, you know, loopy, um, heavily medicated phase that he was in for for several days. And every person that would come up to him and look at him and look at his X-ray would say, "Oh man, that's bad. That's bad. I hate that for you. You know, you're not gonna be able to be on a bike again. And what are you gonna do?" I mean, he's like, "Hey, it could be worse." And he didn't just say that for me and my husband and my, my daughter for our benefit. He really believed it. And it really was true. But the thing is, we forget that that really is true. Because we're so focused on our narcissistic little circumstances of, oh, he's got to have surgery. And he's got a really big scar. And classes are going to get behind and all these things. Instead, I need to be looking at going, not why did this happen, God, but why didn't he have head injury? Why didn't he have a paralyzing neck injury? God, why not? Rejoice where you are. That's what this said to me. And the next was remove, and it was verse 10. And he says this, remove your vexation from your heart. Now, remember that word vexation? It means anxiety, right? It means trouble. It means what are those things that you just carry that just burden you? We all have them, don't we? What are those things? Childhood and youth and the youngness that we hear him talking about here, he's moving us to this idea that they are transient, aren't they? And they end. Don't waste opportunity. Don't decide, I don't want a broken arm, God. How about in the midst of the broken arm, say, where are you taking me? I, I thought of this story, and I love that my, um, my aunt's here and, and my mom, and, because it made me think of my grandpa. Now, if I, guys, I could do a whole hour right on grandpa. Toughest man you'll ever meet. Um, had the greatest stories. He was a Navy man. He worked from the age of like 13. Everything he had was hard fought for. Um, the grandpa that I knew lived next door to me was basically like my second dad. He had a little, um, you might remember if you're a longtime Louisville person, he had like a little, like a, um, like a little, uh, I don't know, a little temporary building on I-35 and he did wood upholstery and refinishing. And he had um, broken fingers and cuts and he was the hardest working man I've ever been around in my whole life. And you know what was crazy about him is that before I got to know him, um, he suffered many losses, but one that my mom speaks about often is this. They lived in Highland Village, and it was before the time when there was even a fire department. It was like volunteers, and it was, it was rural. I mean, it was out there. And their house burned to the ground one night. To the ground. 
And, and, and I, I remember her telling the story that they had hoses, you know, and the neighbors all came over, and, but it was like it was gone, everything. And this is my grandpa who's worked from the age of 13 and had a beautiful two-story house in Highland Village, Texas, and it's gone. And she tells the story and has told it many times because she reminds us all the time that sometimes in life we shovel Sometimes in life, you cry all night because your house is burned down, and then you get up the next morning, and you pick up the shovel, and you rebuild. And that's what he did. Everybody gathered around, and it was so easy to stand around and go, oh, can you believe the house burned down? Oh, this is so tragic. And he walks over and picks up a shovel, starts loading up a truck, 12 truckloads of ashes that day. And he said, we cried, now we rebuild. And that's what I saw when I saw what Solomon said here, that we remove the vexation of these things in our lives. You think my grandpa wanted his house to burn down to the ground? There ain't no time to stand around and complain about it. We get that stuff out and we move on to what God has next. You shovel and you rebuild. And the last thing he tells us in verse 12 excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1, was the most important thing. And, you know, I, I hear this, and I know we covered the end of chapter 12 in our very first week of study, if you'll remember, kind of go backward. But, but consider this for a minute. We're at the end of the book. We're at the end of the book. He has told us all of these things, right? All these certainties of life that are, that are a little depressing, for being honest, but honest. But he finishes it with verse 1 of chapter 12, and he says this, and I just uh, overwhelmed me. Remember also your creator. Remember your creator. Seems important, doesn't it? And we talked a little bit in homework that this wasn't just meant like, oh, just remember that there's God up there, and just every now and then kind of give him a thumbs up. Doesn't mean that, does it? It means to seek him. It means to go after him. It means to chase him. It means don't chase the things in life that make us comfortable. It means to chase after God. Verses 3 through 8 talk us through the joys of youth. Then it moves on to the certainty of aging. And then it moves on to the finality of death, doesn't it? That, little, um, that, that literary picture that was so weird, right? About the teeth and the, and the I don't know, blossoms and all the things. Okay, well, the deal is we don't have time to go through all those details. And there's a lot of opinions. But the thing is, this was our poetic Solomon laying out for us. Life happens. Certainty of aging and the finality of death. That's a sober reality. There's life and death in a fallen world. But here's the thing. We rejoice, we remember, we rejoice, we remove, and we remember. And here's the deal. Why do we remember him? You know why we do it? You know why we remember him? He's the creator. He's the savior. And this is, this is like, this was to me last night. I felt God just saying this over and over. And he remembers us. Don't forget that. He's not just some big daddy on a throne that's unapproachable. He remembered you. He remembered your name. He saw through your sin. He hung on a cross. Creator, Savior, he remembers us. We need to remember him. Why not remember him now? Listen, we can't wait. You're the youngest you will ever be today in this moment. Happy birthday. You don't have the luxury of time. When we don't have the luxury of time, we look at it like this. And my mother-in-law always says this. I, when I love hearing the story about how she came to Jesus, and she'll start it with, well, I didn't until I was a little later in life. But the beauty of it is, as soon as she did, she was all in. Amen? I want to be all in. 
I want to make up for lost time. All that time behind you where you haven't been chasing after him, change it right now. Make up for lost time right now. If you rely on you to be God, you will find chaos, hopelessness, and you will eventually become very bitter. And I mean that to those of us who don't know Jesus as Savior, but I also mean that to those of us who do. Because we do it too, don't we? We want to be our own God. And you know what? Honestly, you're all real pretty and you look real cute and stuff. And your adornments are lovely, but you're bad at being God. I'm bad at being God. That's why we need him. I want to close with this quote. John Newton says this. John Newton's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote a bunch of other hymns. And if you watch, there's a movie about him and books and everything. But the thing is, what you need to know about him, he had a Paul life, man. He had some bad stuff happen. But at the end of his life, you know what he said? He said this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things. You know what they are? I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Two things. May we walk out of here remembering that life is a gift. Death is certain. Life is uncertain. It's unpredictable. But God gave us the greatest gift in his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time um, that you give us to talk and to learn and to dig deeper into who you are. I pray that every woman leaves here today making that decision, God, facing the facts that you are here, you are pursuing, you are available, and more than anything, you remembered us when you sent your son to die on the cross for us. Um, Father, thank you. We can never thank you enough. And we thank you for the opportunity to be in this place studying your word together, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.